First Peter chapter number one. Uh, this morning I'd like to talk to you about the, the title of this morning's message is Faith on Trial. And it will be focused on in verse 6 down to verse number 9. Talk a little bit about suffering this morning. Suffering is something that's very common in our world uh, today. Uh, most of us suffer in some way, shape, or form with all the stuff that we've been going, on, going through as a culture. Suffering is even becoming more and more prevalent. And um, how to respond to that, how to respond to the suffering that we go through, and, and also how to view the suffering that we go through is, is crucial. It's critical. Suffering is not, um, is not meaningless. The culture might say it is, but suffering is not meaningless. There's a deeper and more significant purpose behind the sufferings that we go through. So we're going to talk about suffering this morning, the common nature of it. The question of suffering is difficult to answer because the world does see it as purposeless and evil. Uh, most people would say, or, or many people would say, that suffering is the reason why they refuse to believe in God's existence. Um, their comments might be something to this effect. If God, were, if God did exist, if God were powerful, and if God did care, um, Scripture says that God is all-loving, He is all-powerful, and He exists. And so the world, in the world's perspective and from the world's um, view point of view, they would say that uh, then there wouldn't be any suffering in the world. And because of the fact that there's suffering in the world and there's challenges and difficulties, the world says God must not exist, God must not be powerful, or God must not care. And we know that according to Scripture, none of these things are true. From a purely physical perspective, the idea of God being all-powerful, God caring, and God existing meaning that there is no suffering, sounds reasonable. However, when you, look at the, when you look at that statement from a spiritual perspective, when you look at that statement from God's perspective, the opposite is, ap- is actually true. A suffering is actually necessary for the world that we live in. A suffering is a tool that God uses for two purposes. God uses suffering, number one, to judge sinners, Because sin entered into the world through Adam, and suffering entered in because of sin. Uh, The Bible tells us that in Romans 5 and verse number 12. When sin came into the world, then judgment also came into the world. And so the reason why we face suffering, Adam and Eve didn't face suffering at all prior to the fall, but once sin came into this world, suffering came along with it in in many different ways, in many different ways. Uh, uh, avenues through which we suffer. And many of us suffer in different ways. But suffering is not only meant to bring judgment upon sinners and, and even to almost forewarn them of the, of the ultimate judgment or the final judgment, but suffering is also meant to be a sanctifying process for saints. And so suffering is to bring judgment and condemnation on sinners, but it's also meant to bring growth and maturity for those who believe, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, for those who have committed their lives to Him. Suffering doesn't disappear in this life. Suffering continues, and sometimes suffering escalates as people become more and more engulfed in following Jesus. 
Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean things are going to get easier in life. The reality is, as we study biblical history, is that when people commit their lives to Christ in a full way, that suffering doesn't lessen, but suffering intensifies. A suffering becomes greater. And if our mindset is to avoid suffering, if we think of suffering as being evil, if we think of suffering as being unnecessary, if we think of suffering as being purposeless, then we will seek to avoid suffering, which ultimately will move us away from becoming a strong follower of Christ. If being a strong follower of Christ results in suffering, and we believe in our heart that suffering doesn't have a purpose, then we're going to do all that we can to avoid suffering which means we avoid being a strong follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, standing up for what is right is going to result in suffering. People are not going to like you. People are going to laugh at you. People are going to call you names and think you weird and think you odd. And it's going to result in forms of suffering. So we either embrace the suffering that we go through or we refuse to stand for what is right, stand for truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, the Bible says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10, the Bible says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. In other words, through suffering, through the difficulties and the challenges that we face in life, God is sanctifying us. Four terms used to describe that. He's perfecting us through suffering. He's establishing us through suffering. He's strengthening us through suffering. And he's settling us through suffering. That is what we would call sanctification. So suffering is very necessary for those who are followers of Jesus Christ Number one, if we're going to be conformed into his image. And number two, if we're going to reflect him. Uh, Christ's life was uh, defined by suffering. The reason why we follow Christ was because of his suffering. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. A 17th century Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Watson said these few statements to help us understand suffering. He said, the Lord may bruise us by affliction, but it is to enrich us. These afflictions work for us a weight of glory. God's rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image most distinctly on us. Affliction is God's flail to thresh out the husk, not to consume the precious grain. And the last statement he made, and he makes many others about suffering, but he says this, fiery trials make golden Christians. Suffering is a theme in Scripture. John 15 and verse number 20, Jesus talks of his own suffering, and he tells his disciples, if I have suffered, you will also suffer. He warns them that their life as being a follower of his would be that he, they would be just like their master. They would be like him, and, 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 and therefore, they would suffer like him. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hated me, they will hate you also. 
If the world hated me, they will hate you also. If you follow Christ, if you're one of his, if you stand for truth, 1 Peter 2.21, Jesus says that he suffered as an example so that we might follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, we are told not to be surprised by the sufferings that we face. We are told not to be surprised by what he uses the term fiery trials that are are there to try us or to to test us. In 1 Timothy 3.12, he tells us, that all of those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Suffering is a part of life. Suffering is a part of life for everyone. The reality is this morning is suffering literally puts us all on the same playing field. It levels the playing field. Christians suffer and lost people suffer. It really gives us something in common with them that through which we can display the glory of God. We can display a uniqueness by how we respond to the suffering that both we and the world are experiencing at the same time. It is a point of life, a place in life where, the, where, where we're walking down the same road with the lost, but we're not responding to that road in the same way. This is the gospel. This is why Philippians tells us that we, as we go through life, we should, he says, do not do anything with murmuring and complaining. He says, so that the lost world, this dark world, will see the light, will understand the light. And that's a paraphrase of it, but, but you get the idea. Suffering is normal for a Christian. Suffering is normal for the world. But the way that we respond to suffering should not be normal. It shouldn't be anything like normal. It should be abnormal. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who have died or fallen asleep, that you may, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So we don't grieve like others. In other words, we don't respond to, to difficulty. And in this case, we don't respond to death in the same way that the world does. We, we see it differently. There's something about it, there's something more to it than meets the eye naturally and physically. And so I want, I want to spend some time this morning and just unpack uh, these four verses. I want to read uh, a few others in, in, in um, just introduction. And I want us to just think about suffering. I titled the message, Faith on Trial, instead of the trial of faith, which is the term that the text uses. But the idea of the text is that our faith in suffering is on trial. It is being tested. It is being proven. Your faith this morning in the suffering that we're going through as a nation, as a church, as individuals, the suffering that you're facing in your own life, maybe physically, financially, um, the things that we deal with, that is a test of your faith. It is a trial of your faith. And this is what makes the way that we respond to trials super important. And I want to explain that to you further. Read with me. I'm just going to begin in verse number 1 and we're going to go down to verse number 9. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
So these people are exiles, means they've been exiled. It's not a, this is not a, a party for them. This is a time of challenges and difficulties. And, and Peter's two epistles are defined by suffering. If you were to read First and Second Peter, you couldn't read them uh, properly without reading that they're, they're, Peter is dealing specifically with a suffering church or a suffering people. He says in verse number 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. It's important that you underline or make note of this opening or introduction verse. It says that this is for the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, it's for your sanctification so that people can see the Spirit, so that you can be sanctified, so that you can be obedient to Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, which is what we would call salvation. This is the reason why Peter is writing this to the church, for those distinct reasons. It's not so that we can be comfortable. It's not so that we can have happiness, as the world would present. The world will present to you the offer of happiness at the price of sanctification. This is exactly what Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness when he said, I will give you whatever you want if you will just bow down to me. And Jesus said, no, that is not the case. The word of God says this, and Jesus refuses to obey Satan and take the offer that he gives him, which is temporary, on the basis of what God's word says. Every response that Jesus gives to the devil in the wilderness is built on the word of God for the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ, for the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And this is spiritual. This is eternal stuff. It's not temporal. It's, it's, it, it matters. It makes a difference. And then he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How many of us want that inheritance? Is that inheritance better than the financial, physical inheritance that we can get in this life? Is it better than gold and silver? Is it better? Listen to what he says here. Kept in where? Kept in heaven for you. Do you know what that means? It's not for this life. This, this treasure, this inheritance that God has promised to us that is going to be an amazing inheritance in the next life, but in this life it's going to include suffering and trials and tribulations and heartache and all of these things that's going to be, this life is going to be saturated with them, but he says this, this, this inheritance, this blessing, this hope is, a, is, a, is an eternal hope that's being kept in, it's being preserved for you in heaven. You're going to get it one day. You're going to have it. It's going to be eternal blessings, eternal hope, eternal salvation. It's being kept in heaven for you. Verse number five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Okay, they're being guarded by whom? By God, amen. Your inheritance is being guarded by God. 
I'm glad to hear that, right? It's better than the, uh, than the, better than the police officer standing in front of the bank and guarding our money. It's better than the FDIC where the federal government guards our money. God is guarding our inheritance. But listen, it's not an inheritance in this life, he says, ready to be revealed when? In the last times. It's a future inheritance. It's an eternal inheritance. It's an unfading inheritance. It's an undefiled inheritance. Why? Because it's a heavenly inheritance. It's not an earthly inheritance. The Christian life, the foundation of the Christian life, the fundamental basis of the Christian life is mentioned to us in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, this is the gospel. And the whole book of 1 Corinthians, or the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection into eternity. The gospel is built around people who are not living for this life. It's built around people who are living for the next life. This is why the scripture doesn't understand when it writes about people who call themselves Christians who are living selfish, fleshly. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. The Bible doesn't understand those things about Christians. The Bible doesn't comprehend that because it makes no sense to the Bible. Because for Christians, it's all about the next life. It's not about living in the pleasures of this life and self-gratification. It's about living for the next life. And therefore, this life is full of, of work. It's full of hardship and pain to share the gospel with people, to, to minister and serve people in this life. It's not about us. It's about him and it's about others. And we look forward to a great, a great eternal blessing. And I just, I want to say this, I want to say this, folks, that that this, it is impossible to respond to your trials and your tribulations and heartache and pain and, and whatever you're dealing with. It is impossible to respond properly to those things unless you have an eternal perspective. It's impossible. You have got to get verses 3 down to verse number 5. They have to powerly, powerfully live in your heart before you'll watch this world and you'll see all of the difficulties and challenges and you'll face them yourselves and you will respond in such a way as that glorifies God in heaven. Let's go to our text now, verses 6 through 9. The Bible says, In this you rejoice. In what? In eternal, in eternal glory, in eternal riches, in eternal blessing, in eternal inheritance. We, we, are, we are glorying in that reality. We are rejoicing in eternal realities. He says, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's talking about this life now. He said, the internal inheritance that you're looking forward to and you're joyful about isn't something that you're going to experience necessarily in this life. It's going to be pain and suffering. And he says, but it's okay in light of the treasure that we're looking forward to. This is um, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 when Paul says that his light affliction, his momentary affliction, his was nothing to him in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that he looked forward to. He says in verse number 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, where the genuineness of your faith, the, the truth of your faith, the reality of your faith, the um, provenness of your faith, 
is more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the, revela- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your salvation, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, moving to the eternal. The end moves to the eternal again when he says obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. This is the eternal blessing that we experience. So where I want to, where I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning is talking about the trial of your faith. The tested, as, as his, he uses the term here, the tested genuineness of your faith. In other words, trials and tribulations that we go through, difficulties, challenges in this life have a purpose. And that purpose is to prove the genuineness, to prove the strength of your faith. We'll unfold that here in a moment. If you're taking notes, the first point this morning is the purpose of trials. or And we'll use the term trials and suffering interchangeably. What is the purpose of trials? Number one, the purpose of trials is to prove something. And the word is used to test something, to, to prove the trustworthiness of something. A trial is when you put something to the test and, that, and, the, and the test that you put it through proves whether or not it's authentic. It proves whether or not it's capable. It proves whether or not it's strong. It proves whether or not it's powerful enough to accomplish the task that is ahead of it. A trial is meant to prove the trustworthiness of something. Let me give you a few illustrations of it. A runner may trial his legs. In other words, he's going to go out, and my wife enjoys running, and she might go out for months preparing for a, uh, a, an event, and each day she's going to trial her legs. She might go one mile one day and then two miles the next day, and then she might stretch out and try to do five miles. And she's, she's proving whether or not her legs are capable of accomplishing the goal that is going to be set before her. Is she able to run the triathlon or is she able to run the longer race? So she's proving this. A lifter may trial his muscles. A soldier may trial his weapons. A debater may trial his arguments. A musician may trial his instruments. All of these things, these, uh, in the morning, the, the worship team comes up here and they trial their instruments. Their prayer and their hope is, is that the instruments are up to the task. They're putting them to the test. They're testing to see whether or not they are trustworthy, whether or not they're capable of accomplishing what they are going to be used to accomplish. And if at some point one of the instruments is not capable, they'll probably get another instrument and they'll put it in its place, and they'll, they'll exchange it out for an instrument that is capable of accomplishing the task that's before them. That's, that is what the trial, that's what a trial is. That's the purpose of a trial. So the purpose of a trial, number one, is to prove something. It's proving something. Number two, trials are meant to pain. Trials are meant to be painful. The word in this verse is a word that's also connected with suffering, heartache, 
difficulty or loss. A trial is meant to hurt. It's meant to press something to its limits. It's going to press something to its limits because, because at its limits is where we know what it's capable of doing and what it's not capable of doing. If we never press something to its limits, we never discover how capable it is, do we? If my wife goes out and she runs one mile a day, and man, running one mile a day is really, really easy for her, but I don't ever want to try that two-mile mark because if I try that two-mile mark, I might fail at it. No, if she's going to try or put her legs through that trial, she's going to press further. She's going to press to a longer distance to see if she's capable of accomplishing that. So a trial is meant to be proving things. Number two, it's meant to be painful. It's meant to bring difficulty or press us to the limit. God often orchestrates trials in the scriptures. He orchestrated trials with Job. He orchestrated trials with David. He orchestrated trials with his disciples. He tells them to get into the boat and go to the other side, knowing that they're getting ready to face a great storm. He orchestrated trials with the three Hebrew children. The trials uh, manifest themselves in storms, giants, fiery furnaces, lions, needs, shipwrecks, pain, loss, sickness, loneliness, and we can go on and on as to how many ways that these trials manifest themselves. But what God is doing is he's allowing or orchestrating things into our lives to press us to the furthest that we can go. He's pressing us. He's making it painful for us so that we can, so that we can be, our faith can be tried. It can be proven whether or not it's real or not real, whether or not it's powerful or it's not powerful. First Peter 4 made mention of it earlier, verse 12 and 13. The Bible says, Beloved, do not think it a strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Trials are meant to be painful. They're meant to hurt. They're meant to press to push further, to push farther. Why? Because they're proving something. They're proving the ability of what is being tested. And if you don't prove the ability of what is being tested, when you get into the battle, like a soldier doesn't prove his weapon or what it's capable of, when he gets into battle, guess what? He is vulnerable to dying, isn't he? If that weapon fails, if that commander says charge, and he gets that weapon that has never been proven and starts to shoot, and he realizes that that gun is jammed, he is going to die, isn't he? The same truth is, the same principle is true spiritually in our lives. We are pressed, we are pushed further and further and further to prove something so that when we're put into the battle, we know that, our, we know that what we're trusting in, we know that what we're trusting in is capable. That's the trial of our faith. Number three, it's meant, number one, to prove something. Number two, it's meant to be painful. And number three, it's meant to persuade. Suffering is meant to persuade us. It is a tool that God uses to distinguish. You read the, old, you read the last days in the scriptures and you'll find that great suffering is going to come. And the purpose of that great suffering is to prove the the true converts from the false converts. It's to separate the wheat from the tares, the goats from the, from, the, from the sheep. Suffering is meant to persuade us. 
God is pressing us in suffering and in trials. God is pressing us away from the things of this world. Okay? Suffering is meant for us to say, I look forward to heaven. Difficulty is meant for us to say, I want to be with Jesus. The Apostle Paul is a great example of that in the book of Philippians where he says, I would rather be with the Lord. And the reason why the Apostle Paul said that was because his life here on this earth stunk, for lack of a better word. If we were looking for somebody that we wanted to mimic our life after for happiness and for, for um, fulfillment and things of that nature from a human perspective, Paul's not the guy you would go to. Hence the reason why he looked forward to being out of here. The, the, the death to him, the rapture to him, whatever God used to get him out of here was a great thing because his life was so full of suffering in this life. Trials are meant to persuade us away from the things of this world and into the arms of Christ. It's meant to press us away from self. It's it's meant to press us away from the pursuit of those things that hinder us from being used by God and press us into a mold by which we serve God rightly, embracing the suffering that comes along with that service. Let me tell you this. At the same time, Satan is taking that same suffering and trying to push you into a different mold. You see, Satan takes what God orchestrates and he he manipulates it. So in all of Job's life, right, God sends all of this stuff, God orchestrates all of this stuff to Job and the devil administrates it, right? God's goal for Job is to conform him into the image of Christ. It's to break him free of himself. Satan's Job is for Satan's goal for Job is to get him to deny Jesus, right? So both of them are through one event, the same event, two different purposes. One is to press us away from self, which suffering can do for a believer. It's like, oh, I'm tired of myself. But suffering also, for some people, presses them towards self. And it makes people compromise it makes people not speak the truth and not do what's right because they're afraid of, not, of suffering. Suffering is meant to persuade us. It's meant to press us one way or the other. If there is no suffering, there'll be no realization of where you're at in your spiritual life. James 1 says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, And then in verse number 12, it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to those who love him. You'll notice the two words used here in verse number 2. The word trial is used. In verse number 12, the word temptation is used. Every trial is met with a temptation. Satan Satan is going to marry a trial with temptation in the same way that he did in Job's life. So when you face a trial, the temptation is to complain. The temptation is to murmur. The temptation is to escape. The temptation is to find some pleasure that will take your mind off of the trial. So God brings trials to mold us, and Satan brings temptation alongside of those. He uses those trials to destroy us. We've got to know that. That's what trials are are meant to do in God's perspective, and that's what they're meant to do in the devil's perspective. That's what he's doing. In suffering, something is being proven through your pain 
and your pain is persuading you either to treasure Christ or to treasure pleasure. Without suffering, listen, without suffering, you can walk through life and never have to make that decision. And that's a dangerous place to be because we must make that decision if we're going to be followers of Christ. Do I choose Christ over everything else? Trials are meant to pain. So trials are meant, number one, to to, uh, prove. They're meant, number two, to pain. They're meant, number three, to persuade us. And this is the purpose of our trials. This is the purpose of the testing of our faith. Number two is the purpose or the person of trials. The person of trials. What is a trial focused on? Who is truly being tested in a trial? Some of you might say as you seek to... to as you seek to suffer rightly in the world that we live in, you might say, I need to be stronger. I need to be steadier. I need to be more faithful. I need to be more equipped. And you will find that you are focusing in on yourself for victory over a trial that is of your faith. You are being, it's, 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 like, it's like testing the instruments up here. When the instruments fail... It's because the instruments aren't right. They have to be replaced and removed and and put something back in their place. This is not the testing of you. It's the testing of your faith. So what we have to do is we have to find out what is our faith. What is faith? If I'm saying I'm testing my drums, I know what that means, right? If I'm testing my faith, what 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 is truly being tested? Trials are meant to test faith. And faith can often be confused with believing. Believing in the Bible is a verb. It is an action, something that describes something that we do. We might ask ourselves the question, how much do I believe? Do I believe enough? How strong is my faith? Believing is something that's always associated with you. I am on trial here, and therefore, all suffering becomes about me. Because I am on trial. I am proving myself. I am proving how strong I am. I am proving how faithful I am. I am proving how steadfast I am. I am proving how persevering I am. No, you're not proving anything. The trial of your faith is not meant to prove anything about you. The trial of your faith is not meant to prove anything about you. The trial of your faith is meant to prove your faith. And faith is not an action. Faith is a noun. It is this. Faith is how strong is what you're trusting in. How powerful is what you're trusting in. How how capable is what you're trusting in. The testing of your faith is not you. It's what you're trusting in. It's proving what you believe. So if your faith is a Catholic faith, Presbyterian faith, a charismatic faith, a Baptist faith, a Jewish faith, a humanistic faith, a Hindu faith, a, a Bible faith, an evangelical faith. These are all faiths. These are all describing systems. So if I call myself a Christian and I live a certain way, it's not proving me. It's proving whether or not my faith is real. You see, people aren't just looking at you when they see how you respond to trials. They're looking at the one that you trust in. 
Who are you dependent on? Who are you trusting in to get you through the difficult times of life? I would submit to you that it's Jesus. That Jesus is on trial when your faith is being tested. You're not on trial. He's on trial. This is a testing of Jesus' power. This is a testing of Jesus' faithfulness. This is a test of Jesus' steadfastness and perseverance. When we go through difficulty, it's not a test of us. It's a test of Him. This is what maximizes our suffering. This is what makes it so important for us to suffer well because we know we're either doing a service to the glory of God or we're doing a disservice to the glory of God. What does it say when we complain and murmur? If we're trusting in Jesus to get us through life, right? And we complain and murmur, what does that say? What does it say? Well, I'm just having a bad day. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you concluded that. But it's more than that. It's reflecting on the one that you're trusting in. He's just having a bad day. And I... Uh, I don't know. He doesn't have bad days, I don't think. The trial of our faith is not a test of us. It's a test of him. Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I find it necessary to write to you exhorting you to to contend earnestly for the faith. To contend earnestly for Christ. As he was once delivered to us. Faith, is, faith on trial is not the proving of you as being strong, but rather it is the proving of the strength of the one to whom you are trusting. This is why murmuring and complaining is discouraged in the Christian faith, because it shows weakness on behalf of the one that you are trusting. This is why in the Old Testament, the Jews, the number one thing, really the number one thing for the most part with, with, the, with the journeying through the wilderness that, the, that Moses had to deal with the most was the fact that the people would murmur and complain. Why is that a big deal? Well, because it reflected on the Lord. When Moses struck the rock, Jesus Christ told him, you will not enter the promised land. And Moses said, why? And he said, because you you misrepresented me. You misrepresented me to the people. You will not enter the promised land because you misrepresented me to the people. What do you mean? He struck the rock. He got a moment of anger. If you read the text in, in, uh, in, um, in Numbers, I believe it is, you will find that he had every reason, humanly speaking, I mean, the people were murmuring and complaining. They were whining. They were everything. He had every reason to strike the rock from a human perspective. Did you know something? It didn't remove God's judgment of him for doing that. Why? Because he misrepresented God. We don't misrepresent God. That's why murmuring and complaining are, are, are warned against because it reflects on our God, not on us. The Gospels describe the proving of faith in the following ways. Matthew 6 and verse 30 the people are worried about their, they are worried about whether or not they're going to be clothed or what they're going to eat. You know what Jesus says to them? Oh, ye of little faith. Matthew 8, 26, the disciples are in the storm trying to figure out how they're going to survive. Jesus says to them, oh, ye of little faith. Matthew 14, 31, Jesus is walking on the water. Peter gets out of the boat and walks with him. He begins to notice the storms around him. You know what Jesus says to him? Oh, ye of little faith. Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Jesus says to his disciples, go to the other side. His disciples begin to complain and murmur because they forgot to bring any food. Amen? He just fed 4,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. They get to the other side and they're murmuring because they forgot to bring some food. Jesus says to them, 
O ye of little faith. In each case, the Lord wasn't dealing with the size of their faith, but rather he was dealing with the object of their faith. You see, Jesus would have never said to them, O ye of little faith, if their faith was in Jesus. What he is saying is, is your faith has been placed in something other than Jesus. How do we make, how do we feed ourselves? How do I walk on the water? How do I do this? You don't do it. Jesus does it through you. Jesus does it in you. When Jesus says to them all throughout Scripture, oh, you of little faith, he's not talking about how small their faith is. He's talking about how small the object of their faith is. They were trusting in something other than Jesus, and that is why their faith is called small. Whenever the object of your faith is anything other than Jesus Christ, fear, worry, anxiety, murmuring, and complaining are always the result. Listen to this verse in Matthew 6 and verse 27. Many of you probably have it memorized. He says this, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? A trial is not meant to prove you. It's meant to prove what you're trusting in. A, trials, a trial gives evidence to who or to, to the power and the strength of your God. Next time you face a trial, and I would submit that probably it will be today, refuse, refuse to let it be about you. Refuse to let it be about you, which will minimize it, but rather let it be about him, which will maximize it. And remember that your response puts on display the bigness or the smallness of your God. Number three, the preciousness of your trials. The word precious here means value. It's like there's some value, something that's costly. He says that it's more precious in this text than gold that perishes. In other words, he's talking about it from an eternal perspective, not a temporary perspective. The preciousness of your trials, what makes them precious? Three things, and I'm just going to walk through these. If you're taking notes, you can get them. Number one, they prove who your God is. Number one, they prove who your God is. Trials are the way which God reveals our idols to us. Trials are a good look at what you are trusting. They're a way for you to see. The Bible says that our heart is deceitful. The Bible says that we can be self-deceived in James. Trials help us see what we trust in. Let me ask you this question. When things turn the wrong direction or when difficulty and challenges in life come, to whom do you turn? Do you turn to your personal strength, to your own strength? Do you turn to other people? Do you turn to ceremonies or religious systems? Do you turn to some type of self-gratification such as alcohol, drugs, or sex, or eating, or immorality? Do you turn to professionals who might be able to fix your problem for you? Listen to me this morning. The Bible is very, very clear that when what we turn to in life is what we worship. I've often said it this way. Whatever is first in your life is your God. Or do we turn to prayer, to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God, or to the church of God for help? Do we turn to Him? It's been proven and it's been historically written about that, that this generation prays less than any other generation ever did. Prays less than any other generation did. We talk about and read historical men who prayed for hours and hours on end knowing that the only hope that they had was in Christ. 
that the only power that they had was in Christ and that they found everything. I'm not talking about some things. They found every deliverance in Christ. And and we think that the, the, the sufficiency of our culture and the sufficiency of the things around us isn't a danger to us. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's a danger to us misplacing Christ. God can use things, but he never uses things so that they will be an idol to you. You would still turn to Christ for everything. And if he puts something in front of you that is a solution, then praise him for it. But don't praise the solution. The preciousness of our faith is that it proves who our God is. Or the preciousness of trials is that they prove who our God is. Number two, they prove God to us. They show us how powerful he is. The fiery furnace, the lion's den, uh, standing in front of Goliath in the storm. All of these are means by which we see the power of God. Psalm 23 and verse 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. May I suggest to you in the psalm, in the 23rd psalm, the closest the shepherd ever gets to the sheep is in the valley of the shadow of death. That's the closest that he gets to the sheep. He uses tools that are meant to draw the sheep in close to him. You know why? Because they're not necessary when you're up on the plain. They're not necessary when things are going well. But closeness to the Lord is more more valuable than the pleasures of the plains. Lot learned that, didn't he? They prove God to us. Trials prove God to us. And number three, they prove God through us. Suffering is not only meant to show how great God is to us, but it's meant to show how great God is through us. How we respond to suffering, the world will watch and see. Remember this, suffering is the one thing that everybody in the world faces. It's the one opportunity that you have and I have to live differently in front of the world. It puts us all in the same playing field. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then I quoted this earlier or mentioned this, Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing or murmuring that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights. The last thing this morning is the product of our trials. We see the product also mentioned in our text that it would all come to the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The product of our trials is that God is glorified. Christ is proven trustworthy not only to us but to others. In your life, your testimony and how you respond to trials will say to other people, either Christ is worthy or he's not worthy. That's what it says to them. It proves the trustworthiness of Christ. And listen to me, if Christ isn't... If Christ is not big enough to be trustworthy in physical things, he's not big enough to be trustworthy in spiritual things. If people say, well, I trust Jesus for eternal life, but, you know, food in the cupboard is a whole different thing. My question and my challenge would be, do you trust Jesus for eternal life? Because eternal life means a lot more than food in the cupboard does. If you can't trust Jesus for food in the cupboard, for protection, for provision, then then my challenge would be, can we really trust Jesus for eternal life? The product of it is is that God is proven trustworthy. God is properly glorified, honored, and praised. 
God is properly glorified, honored, and praised, and God is profoundly proclaimed. In closing, remember that responding to trials is important to proving the power of God. If we minimize trials by making them about us, we miss the point. But when we make trials about God, the one whom we trust and draw strength from, the fruits are great. David against Goliath was not about David's strength, about God's. Daniel in the lion's den was not about Daniel's strength. It was about God's strength. The Hebrew children in the fiery furnace was not about three powerful Hebrew children. It was about three, power, three Hebrew children who had a powerful God. The flood in the time of Noah was not about Noah. It was about God. Hebrews chapter number 11 is full of people of faith who were small people with a massive God. That's what the testing of our faith is. It's not to prove how big we are. It's to prove how big he is. And when we prove how big he is, we'll see how small we are. As we suffer in the church, in our personal lives, let us learn, grow, and win. Not by our own strength or might or for our own glory and honor, but by God's strength and might and for his glory and honor. I close with a few quotes Michael Horton said this, Eternity is most deeply engraved in the rough palms of God's suffering children. Thomas Watson said, Out of the bitterest of drinks, God distills his glory and our salvation. And John Piper says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him in the midst of loss. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will prick every one of our hearts this morning, that we will view challenges and difficulties and suffering and tests and trials totally different than we ever have before, knowing, Lord, that they're not just about us, but they're about the one that we serve. They're about the one that we follow. They're about the one that we claim to trust. And Lord God, help us to prove you to be mighty to the world around us, to our neighbors to our friends, to our co-workers, to our fellow students, to our children, to our grandchildren, to our nephews and nieces and brothers and sisters, to our family. Lord, help us to prove that you are powerful. God, forgive us when we claim or profess with our mouth something that we don't believe in our hearts. Help us to embrace these truths, Lord God, to display them as well. We pray all this for your glory and by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.